Welcome to Torah Dimecha, Nach Yomi, with the OU Women's Initiative. My name is Liat Meyerfeld, and today we will be studying the Book of Yoel, Chapter 1. Many of the Jewish historic greats are shrouded in mystery. We don't know much about them, and even what we know isn't consistent. So too Yoel, whose year of prophecy isn't mentioned and whose name is ambiguous. So much so that Ibn Ezra is of the opinion that we can't know when Yoel lived, but he does say that any time a person is mentioned with his father's name as Yoel is here, it means he was a respected person. The more generations back are mentioned, the more esteemed that person is. We do have various opinions and theories as to who Yoel was and when he prophesied. Verse 1, we are introduced. These are the words of God that came to Yoel, the son of Petuel. Dvar Hashem asheraya el Yoel ben Petuel. Rashi first opinions that Yoel is the son of Shmuel Hanavi, and Shmuel is referred to as Petuel because he persuaded God regarding his son, Pita Kel. Here it seems Yoel is referred to by the historic events of his life and not necessarily by his real name. In the book of Shmuel, chapter 3, we learn that one of Shmuel's two sons was actually named Yoel, but that he was a wicked person. Shmuel was known for his absolute honesty, and we see that even the best of parents and the most righteous of people can't exercise control over their children, as his sons were infamous for taking bribes in the courthouses and notoriously dishonest businessmen in the marketplace. Amazingly, in Devrayamim, Shmuel's son Yoel isn't mentioned by name, but called Vashni, from the root of Shinui, meaning change, and the Midrash says this is because he changed his ways, so much so that he merited to be a prophet. Yoel is recognized as the paradigm of repentance. Usually we understand repentance to mean taking baby steps of change in one specific aspect of our lives, but unusually, Yoel completely changed his lifestyle and character and reached a level of prophecy. So the new Yoel is a change, a radical change, from the old Yoel. Often, in order for a person to be effective, they need to be experienced in the matter that they're speaking about. For example, AA counselors are recovering themselves. So Yoel is a symbol and model of repentance, which makes a great deal of sense because the entire book of Yoel is devoted to the idea of repenting. This should help the Jewish people to heed his words because he practiced what he preached, or rather, he preached what he had practiced. The first opinion of Rashi is that Yoel is a son of Shmuel who somehow changed himself, got out of a corrupt system, and became a great prophet. Rashi himself immediately states that the problem with maintaining this is chronological. First he had said that Yoel was the son of Shmuel, and then he says that the prophecy occurs in the time of Yehoram, son of Achav, which is hundreds of years later. And then he quotes the Baal HaLachot Gdolot, who he quotes often and says about him that his words are based on tradition. He quotes that Yoel, Nachum, and Chavakuk lived at the time of Menashe, son of Chizkiel. So how do we reconcile everything together? It's difficult. One idea explained in many places by the Radak is that we have an understanding that when it says son of someone, it doesn't always mean direct son, but rather descendant. So it could be that this Yoel is a descendant of Shmuel, and the fact that his direct son was named Yoel shows that it was a name that might have been used and recurs in the family used in the family to reflect this ability to repent, and it helps us understand why Shmuel is called Petuel because of his prayers to persuade God to accept his son. So Yoel is an important person, a descendant of Shmuel, himself a well-respected person, and he might have lived in the time of Yoram or of Menashe. What we definitely learn is that Yoel is a symbol of prayer and repentance. 
That sofrim resonates with this when teaching that, unlike most prophets, no specific time period is mentioned for Yoel's prophecies, specifically in order to stress that the main theme of the book, that of repenting, is timeless. Repentance is needed for the Jewish people's individual and collective survival in all generations. And we'll see how Yoel's words that were edited and included by the members of the Great Assembly, the Anshe Knesset HaGadola, are relevant for our times. Chapter 1 starts. Listen, elders and all inhabitants, lend me your ears. Shimuzo taskenim vazinu kol yoshvei haaretz. Yoel speaks first to the older generation, Hazikenim, to testify that the event he's about to describe had never happened in the past. He then turns to the current young generation, Kol the people who are alive at his time, because they will pass this collective memory down to all future generations. This is necessary because no other record of the event about to be described exists except here. Yoel announces a catastrophic event that he will go on to describe, a tremendous plague of locusts that devastates the land of Israel and its people. Some commentators say it's purely allegorical to describe a major disaster. The 16th century of Barbanel is very bothered by three things. First of all, the fact that this plague is not mentioned anywhere else, because if it was so shocking, it would have been mentioned elsewhere. So, since we can't place it historically, maybe it's just a vehicle that the Navi uses to describe disaster in a way that everyone in an agricultural society would understand. Second, the Abarbanel feels that a plague of locusts and its devastation actually wouldn't be so shocking. The Torah and books of prophets described us many generations that dealt with harsher realities, famine, drought, poverty. The Abarbanel then philosophically states his third reason, and saying that the spiritual devastation is much worse than physical, so it isn't possible that a prophet would be so upset about a plague of locusts. Therefore, the Abarbanel explains that Yoel's prophecy of four types of locusts destroying Israel is an allegory, a mashal, to four nations that will conquer Israel. First, the Babylonians that destroyed the first temple. Then the Persians, from the Purim story, who refused to allow the second temple to be built and threatened to exterminate the entire Jewish people. The Greeks, as per the story of Hanukkah, devastated the second temple and tried to extinguish all elements of Torah life. And fourth are the Romans, who destroyed the second temple and exiled the entire nation. These nations, compared to locusts, destroy all sustenance and water, and Yoel begs the Jewish people to cry out, not in need of physical hunger and thirst, those were the famous words of the prophet Amos, rather a desperate need for them to hear the words of Hashem and a spiritual and physical need to live Hashem's Torah. But if we are to look at the prophecy in the actual words of the text and imagine a plague of locusts, the plague in Egypt immediately springs to mind, and the promises that these plagues will never repeat themselves. So how can this happen on such a scale? Most opinions state that the plague in Egypt was with one type of locusts, and the plague here will be with four types of locusts, as described in verse 4. What the cutter has left, the locust has devoured. Yeter hagazam achal ha'arbe. What the locust has left, the grub has devoured. Vieter ha'arbe achal ha'yelek. And what the grub has left, the hopper has devoured. Vieter ha'yelek achal hechasil. 
The Malbim describes that this plague is horrific because they come one after the other. And each time the people think that things are calm and they can survive, but then another type of locust arrives. And one devastates what the other type has left until there is nothing. The overall effect is a devastating natural disaster. Let's analyze the idea of natural disaster conceptually. People think of it as random, we can't explain it, there seems to be no rhyme or reason for natural disasters. Think of hurricanes or tsunamis around the world. The devastation is indescribable. But why there, when 10 miles away not even a tree is uprooted? Why then, when the day before was beautiful and calm? Earthquakes, tornadoes, all of nature's disasters. The Navi describes it as not being just an accident, but as being an instrument of God's rule with a message for people and that the message shouldn't be ignored. But we see in the next words of Yoel how far removed the people are from trying to understand the messages. Verse 5, Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Hakitsu shikorimu v'chu. Wail, all you swillers of wine. Heilelu kol shote yain. For the new wine that is denied you. Valasis kinichrat mipichem. The Jewish people are described as being drunk, intoxicated. They are so drunk from their wealth, good times, high society, and nothing the Navi would say would affect them. The people of Israel is described as so drunk, they don't realize that nothing will be left when they wake up. They would laugh at the Navi who would tell them to repent. Their high life is all about physical fulfillment, and it seems unstoppable. Only thing that can stop them is something beyond their ability to plan, avoid, or deal with an unpredictable disaster, and once it happens, it's uncontrollable, and the effects for year afterwards, the populations would still be shaking. You who drink wine. Wine is a symbol of having a good time. We can picture people shouting, L'chaim! So many advertisements show us people having a great time drinking, even though often people drink alone to drown their sorrows. If we jump ahead for a minute, we see in verse 9 that wine was also the medium for spirituality and worship of God. Offering and wine sacrifices have ceased from the house of God. The priests who ministered to God must mourn. Wine, on the one hand, described a drunken population, and on the other hand, was used in worship. Vineyards, grapes, and wine symbolize the potential of how we can use the physical world. Grapes and wine have the potential to be used in celebration and spirituality, but on the other hand, to inebriate beyond human recognition. It's up to each individual to choose how to use wine, and so all our gifts. Wine is intrinsically neutral, and we can choose how to use it. So to our speech, vision, and actions. Here we hear descriptions of complete lack of judgment, as the wine and probably all physical gifts are used purely to get drunk and not for spiritual purposes. Let's go back to verse 6 and see the description of the plague. We read, locusts invade like a great army. You can't count them. With teeth like a lion. That's enough to scare anyone. Nowadays, every so often, we hear that there are locust invasions, so thick that you can see them like a black wall coming towards you, and literally everything in their path is eaten. Cars can't drive through, and the motors of cars get clogged full of them. Even with pesticides today, we are still not immune to locusts. And they consume everything, the bark off the tree, as described in verse 7. Everything gets thrown to the wayside and destroyed. Yoel describes how the plague came upon the people and the land. It was because of the corruption and their complete focus on physical pleasures. 
So the only way Hashem can wake them up was to bring such a plague upon them. Rabbi Beryl Wine teaches that this refers to a general pattern that recurs around the world in Jewish life. Jewish people become so far gone, so desperate in pursuit of idolatry, alien goals and gods, and pleasure. So hot after it that the only thing that brings them to stop short is a disaster of this type. Indescribable disaster, with unimaginable destruction in its wake. Nothing is left. Nothing. Then the people will finally stop, and all of a sudden the pursuit of wealth and pleasure, of everything, it's finally slowly arrested. The people will hopefully finally refocus their energies on what is spiritual and moral and good. Verse 14 calls for them to stop and fast, to gather an assembly. Gather the elders and all the people of the land to all cry out to God. Through the description of the devastation in verses 16 to 20, we recognize how wonderful and rich their lives were, the potential that they had. They had fields of grain, orchards of trees, vineyards, every crop possible, herds of cattle and flocks of sheep. They might have used it for pleasure and maybe for some kind of worship, but they lost their way and it will all be destroyed. Chapter 1 ends with a description of complete destruction. All you had will be consumed. The fields are burnt, the animals have no energy but to cry, and there is little or to no water, no source of life at all. Maybe now, maybe now they will realize that there is nothing else for them to do, nowhere else for them to turn. Verse 19, Elecha Hashem Ekra, to finally know that without God, nothing is worthwhile, as everything can and should be used with spiritual intent. Thank you for studying together, Li'iloi Nishmat, Riva Schwab, Rivka Bat Alexander Sender.